yesterday about the physical elements and the intellectual aspects of an integral education system. Today I will turn to two other aspects which are equally important. And I will begin with the aspect of social integration. But before I come to the actual social values, I would like to point out the dimension in which we must now consider this problem. Humanity is in the throes of a transition more fundamental than any of the earlier ones it has undergone. In some ways more important than the transition from the caves to the forests, from the forests to nomadic living, from nomadic to agricultural civilizations, from there to industrial, and then from there to post-industrial society. What is happening now is that we are transiting into a global society. We may be too close to the event to realize the immensity and magnitude of the change. But the fact is that humanity is entering an entirely new kind of civilization. It is global in many ways. Politically, there is no longer any such thing as a bilateral issue. Every issue in the ultimate analysis becomes multilateral, as has become very clear indeed in the last few days. Even the most difficult bilateral issues ultimately become internationalized because the world, in fact, has become one, even though there may be 150 different nationalities this still. Is All India Radio archives the world report. is very much one unit politically. Economically, for several years now, there has been a world economic order. Economic decisions are no longer taken by individual countries. There is a vast global economic network which functions with its own inner momentum. And therefore, what price a developing nation is going to get for a primary product no longer depends upon that nation, but upon decisions taken thousands of miles away from there. Similarly with communications. We have entered a new communications era. The advent of television has been one of the most revolutionary changes in human civilization since the advent of agriculture. Do you realize that the fact that today, by switching on a television set, people from any part of the world can simultaneously become aware of an event can see and hear an event taking place thousands of miles away at the same time, whether it is a political event or a sports event or a, or a music festival or a dance fiesta, whatever. But it is visible at the same time throughout the world. This is something that has never happened before in human history. And this has knit 
the whole human consciousness together in an extraordinary manner. Space travel, the use of satellite technology, all this has developed only in the last few years. Even in culture, certainly there is cultural diversity in this world, but I travel constantly around the globe and I find that young people today are dancing to the same rhythms, whether it is Bombay or Beijing, whether it is Moscow or Madras, whether it is New Delhi or New York. They are dancing to the same rhythms. They tend to wear the same sort of clothes. Their food habits are beginning to converge. So what is happening is a globalization of consciousness is taking place without our being aware of it. And therefore, when we talk of social integration, we must remember that every Indian child is also a global citizen. Let us not get caught in the old chauvinistic trap. We have a very great culture, certainly. We are proud of it. But we are now very clearly part of an emerging world culture. And that is why, when I talk about social values, I will start with, with the family, which is the basic unit of social life, family values, then the, the village or the community, the mohalla, then the city, then the state, then the nation, but we do not stop at the nation, we go on to the entire world. No amount of mere individual development is sufficient to create a viable and dynamic society. Human beings are essentially social beings, and it is only if socially desirable values are transmitted at an early stage in the educational system that we can hope for a peaceful and integrated society. This is All India Radio. We live in an age of unprecedented social turmoil and violence. The last 40 years in India have seen the emergence of vast sections of society who previously remained virtually submerged. The old basis of Indian society under British rule, which was largely feudal, and uh, hierarchical has collapsed. And in its place, new class and caste alignments have thrown national life into a continuing turmoil. Some of this, of course, is to be expected and even welcomed, because an equitable social system can never emerge unless there is a vast democratization of national consciousness. And certainly our democracy in the last 40 years has brought political consciousness to the mind of every Indian citizen, regardless of where he or she lives. In the remotest hamlet today, in Ladakh or in Bastar or in Lakshadweep, people are alive and aware and alert. But in this turmoil, the one fact which stands out starkly is the rapid erosion of what are called moral or social values. The traditional value system has collapsed, but its place has not been taken by any viable alternative. 
This is the tragedy. Traditional systems have to change. I am not at all making a plea for the reintroduction of outmoded traditional value systems. That is not possible and not desirable. Because as we move towards a global society, we will have to move into a new set of values, a new dynamism, which will enable us to survive in the nuclear age. But unfortunately, with the collapse of the traditional value system, no coherent value system has taken its place. In the result, the nation has been reduced to a moral wasteland in which personal greed and sectarian interests take precedence over the larger social good. I know this is a uh, rather strong indictment and unfair also because there are large numbers of people in this country who are working selflessly. But by and large, it is now generally accepted, and I find this wherever I travel in this country, wherever I meet with students and civic leaders, it is generally now accepted that Corruption has become a sort of way of life. It is no longer something which is out of the usual. And the result is that the value system upon which our whole society has been based has begun to erode. It is here that the Indian educational system has registered its greatest failure. Despite the fact that our national movement was led by such outstanding and creative thinkers as Sri Aurobindo and Lokmanya Tilak, Rabindranath Tagore and Maulana Azad, Mahatma Gandhi and Jawaharlal Nehru, our education has totally failed in making the ideas of these great visionaries relevant to the consciousness of post-independence India. A very curious phenomenon. In no other national movement, I can say, without fear of contradiction, have there been people of such high moral, spiritual and intellectual qualities as they were in the Indian national movement. And yet for some strange reason, those values have not been translated into our educational system. Whether it was Sri Aurobindo's flaming patriotism or Gurudev Tagore's aesthetic humanism, Gandhiji's stress upon non-violence and moral values, or Jawaharlal Nehru's deep concern for the welfare of the oppressed and the backward, none of these seem to have had the slightest impact upon our educational planners. Gandhiji and Gurudev, as you know, set up institutions to test their educational ideas. The Nayi Talim movement and the Vishwabharati movement. But these have languished and whatever innovative thinking was done has been lost amidst the dreary desert sands of inertia. And therefore we find ourselves in a situation where socially desirable values, caring and compassion, find no place in our system. Despite a series of high-level recommendations over the last three decades, starting from the Sri Prakasha Committee, and coming right down to the Kothari Commission report, for the introduction of moral education, we seem to be totally incapable of incorporating any concrete elements into our curricula. Even such an elementary matter 
as obliging students to keep their institutions clean is not accepted. We had to clean our own rooms when I was at school. It was supposed to be an elitist school, but we cleaned our own rooms and we cleaned the school. And yet I find that the usual quota of Safai Karamcharis is inevitably introduced, thus accentuating caste and class divisions instead of overcoming them. Despite Gandhiji's stress on the dignity of labor, to which we all pay lip service, hardly anything is actually done to introduce elements of socially beneficial activities in our educational structure. Let us remember that social and moral values will not come to a child automatically. The child will either learn these through example or they will have to be taught. The best way, of course, is to teach by example. As the Gita says, yat yat karoti, whatever the great people do, so will the other people do. The sort of pramana, the sort of example that they uh, will set will be followed by others. So either we teach by example, high moral example, or it is taught through our educational system. Now, what are the sort of values that we are interested in? Cleanliness. Very basic and a very important value. Individually, we are a very clean people. We are constantly bathing. Every possible opportunity, we bathe in the Yamuna, we bathe in the Ganga, we bathe in the holy rivers and all. But collectively, we are one of the dirtiest civilizations on earth. Because we may have been taught individual cleanliness, but we are not taught the social value of cleanliness. We will take the kachara and the, uh, the, all the dust and refuse from our uh, compound and throw it onto the road. Because as long as we are clean, it is all right. It doesn't really matter if the road is cluttered. Now, this sort of attitude is something which has to be changed. Then there is punctuality. This is all we are supposed to be very punctual recorded. because our tradition is the muhuratam. Not even one second can be changed. And yet in this country we seem to live in the eternal present. There is no idea of time. I remember when I came to Delhi first 20 years ago and I used to go to a function on time. There was hardly anybody there because it was a tradition that the minister would necessarily arrive 45 minutes late. This is an absurd situation. This is, this is against all the norms of our own cultural tradition and even of the Western tradition where their punctuality is an extremely important element. Then you take politeness. What does it cost to be polite? Nothing. Japan is a country, a small series of islands, very heavily populated. And every time I visit Japan, I am astonished at the politeness with which the Japanese greet each other. They are constantly bowing to each other and constantly uh, greeting each other and smiling at each other. Because they are taught from childhood that this is the way you should treat other people. Here to get into a queue is a traumatic experience. I see these, the bus queues and the other queues. I don't stand in them myself very often, I must say. But nonetheless, I'm able to see them and I'm told that it is a traumatic experience to get into a bus or to travel in a bus. 
and with all our much vaunted uh, dignity of women and looking upon them as, as Durga and Shakti, the way the women are actually treated in uh, crowded enclosures is something which is disgraceful. Now, these are all matters which have to be taught to the children. Respect to parents and to teachers and elders. This is not a feudal virtue. It's not an old-fashioned virtue. Even in China today, this if you go, the elderly are respected. Helpfulness. I remember in my childhood, I was a member of the Boy Scout movement. And we had to perform one good deed every day. Now, that's a very good idea. You should help people. Children must be taught to help their less favored and weaker colleagues. If a child falls, the other ch children should come and help him get up. Not the attitude that we just look after ourselves only and it doesn't matter what happens to the rest of society. So this is the sort of social environment that we have to create. And we cannot create it unless these are taught in our educational system. Because in the family, the family has its importance. The parents have their responsibility. The teachers have their responsibility. But the educational system has also got to impart a social ethic and a work ethic. There's a lot of talk about the work ethic, the, the Protestant work ethic, for example, which is supposed to have been responsible for the development of uh, uh, Western Europe and North America, or the Japanese work ethic. The Japanese work so hard that uh, uh, one has to force them to take uh, leave. We also have a work ethic in India. Yoga karmasu kaushalam. Yoga is skill in works. That is the definition of yoga in the Gita. And those works should be shuchir dakshaha. They should be neat, clean, and perfect. So we have the ethic, but do we live up to this ethic? Do we reflect this ethic in our educational system? Are our children even taught of these values that are there in our, uh, in our cultural this background? All India Radio they are not. Recording. So when you talk of socially desirable values, we have got to take a positive decision to introduce them into the schoolroom, either through direct teaching of moral education or indirectly. But they have to be introduced. Let us, let us remember that no nation can become great unless it has a fairly clear scale of values to which it is committed. In India, this has now become confused and diluted. The early impetus and euphoria of the freedom movement has evaporated leaving us in a sort of intellectual wilderness from which there seems to be no escape. Certainly there has been tremendous economic growth in the last 40 years. But whether as a nation our moral fiber and intellectual caliber has really risen is open to serious doubt. And I'm afraid if it has not risen, the responsibility for this is upon our educational system. And I do think that one of the reasons for this is uh, a distorted and anti-religious view of secularism. Secularism has never meant that we should banish all moral and spiritual values from our uh, country. Secularism means 
the total freedom of all religions in this country, the total equality of all religions in this country, and the fact that the state as such has no religion. But it does not mean, and should not be taken to mean, that any value which is desirable, just because it happens also to be a religious value, should thereby be neglected. I think the time has now come when we have got to rethink this, this whole issue radio and see what we can do to re-establish certain moral principles in our educational system. We have before us the examples of Germany and Japan, two nations which 40 years ago had literally been flattened after their defeat in the Second World War. In Berlin, there was not one single structure standing at the end of the war after the bombing of Berlin. How is it that within these four decades, they have so rebuilt their nations that today they are in the very forefront of development? How did their civilizations produce the discipline, dedication, and capacity for sustained work, whereas we, with all our great cultural heritage, have failed to do so. Why is it that in India, we always go for the soft option? We want all the advantages of democracy, but are not prepared to accept the discipline and responsibility that this involves. Why do we speak constantly about fundamental rights, but conveniently forget that fundamental duties are also part of the Constitution? I do not think anybody ever says in their speeches that the Constitution incorporates certain fundamental duties which we must fulfill. Our rights, of course, we want. Fair enough, it is a democracy and we should have our rights. But let us never forget that rights and duties are two sides of the same coin. And ultimately, if we keep insisting on our rights, and keep forgetting our obligations and duties, we are going to get into an extremely difficult situation. The answer to these questions, of course, this is, is complex, but surely a large part of the problem lies in the total collapse of any value orientation in our educational system. Unless this dimension receives urgent and effective consideration, we will not be able to pull ourselves out of the negative syndrome into which we seem to have fallen. And we will not be able to build the India of which Sardar Patel and other great leaders dreamed. Therefore, as my third point in this presentation, I would like to stress the prime necessity of reintroducing social and moral values in our educational system. It can be done if there is a clear-cut desire to do so. And it can be done in a manner which will not offend anybody, but which I am sure will be widely welcomed throughout the country. Finally, and fourthly, I come to what is perhaps the most fundamental dimension of any educational system the spiritual dimension involving the deepest recesses of the human personality and the highest reaches of human consciousness. I am aware that this is generally looked upon 
as the preserve of the individual or the family rather than as part of the educational system itself. And it is true that under our constitution, it is neither possible nor desirable for the public education system to undertake direct religious education. Nonetheless, the system must at least provide some introduction to our vast and varied religious heritage. This is All India Radio the father of the nation, Mahatma Gandhi, and the framers of our constitution were by no means anti-religious. As I said, what secularism in the Indian context really means is that there is no state religion and that there is no discrimination on the basis of religion. It does not mean that religious and spiritual values should be outlawed from our educational system. It means equal respect for all religions, not equal neglect of all religions. I think this is an important point which we have to understand and we have to work on this. Let me give you an example of some universal values drawn from the Vedanta, which could in their own way be incorporated into an educational system. I'll give you five concepts from the Vedanta. The first is The fact that this entire universe, not only our tiny speck of dust that we call the earth, but the billions upon billions of galaxies of which I spoke, all of them are permeated by the same indivisible force. This is something now which scientists in the West are also beginning to accept. After the Einsteinian revolution, with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, with quantum mechanics, with extragalactic cosmology, scientists are now looking for that one unifying principle. They now realize that the dichotomies between matter and energy are artificial. They are imposed dichotomies and not inherent in the nature of, uh, of reality. And they are now beginning to veer around to the view this is expressed many thousands of years ago by the rishis that there is only this one power that permeates the entire universe. Then take the concept of the divinity of each individual. Ishwara sarvabhutanam hriddeshetishtati. The Lord resides in the heart of every individual, not only of the Indians or of the Brahmins of any particular class or caste or clan or creed, but of all individuals. That has been the Vedantic outlook. The divinity of the individual. The individuals are referred to in the Upanishads as Amritasya Putra, children of immortality. What a great, noble concept this is. If God exists, of course God is divine. There's nothing great about it. But our rishis have postulated the inherent divinity of each individual. Hence the dignity of each individual. Hence the fact that each individual has got to be respected as an individual. Has got to be given the freedom to develop. Has got to be given the chance to fan that spark of uh, divinity within him into the blazing fire of spiritual realization. That is a great concept that we have got. Move onwards from that to the concept of Vasudeva Kutumbakam. 
the world as a family. Parliament is our highest forum. On the first gate, when you enter Parliament, the great shloka is written. Ayam nija paroveti gananam laguchetasam udara charetanam tu vasudeva kutumbakam. That this is mine, this is yours. The divisive view is a small and narrow way of looking at reality. But for those of the greater consciousness, Vasudeva Kutumbukam. The world is a family. What a beautiful concept. What a marvelous motto for the global society that is emerging. Vasudeva Kutumbukam. These are the sorts of values that we have inherent in our, in our culture. I will give you another example. The essential unity of all religions. Ekam sat vipra bahuda vadanti. The Rig Veda says that the truth is one, although the wise may call it by many names. I take part now in many interreligious, interfaith dialogues. I come myself from a Muslim majority state. I have worshipped at Muslim shrines from my childhood. I am the neighbor of the Punjab, I worshipped at the, at the Golden Temple ever since I can remember. I visited all the great churches in the world. It cannot ultimately be that all these great places of worship are devoted and dedicated to different divinities. The divinities may appear to be different. The religions may have developed at different periods in humanity's history. But nonetheless, if one believes in an all-pervasive divinity, ultimately the goal has got to be one. Ekam sat vipra bahuda vadanti. What a lot of wisdom there is in that. When today in the name of religion, hatred is being preached, divisiveness is being preached, when in the name of religion, walls are being built to separate man from man, we can go back to the source of our tradition, which tells us that these are all different paths to the same goal. In the same way as rivers and rivulets arise from different parts of the country but flow ultimately into the same ocean, so do all the great religions of the world have different origins but ultimately move towards the same goal. And this is borne out if you look at the mystic teachings, whether it is the, the seers of the Upanishad or whether it is the Muslim Sufis, Maulana Jalaluddin Rumi, or the great Christian mystics, Meister Eckhart and Risebroke and Plotinus or William Blake, or the great, uh, the great uh, gurus of the Sikhs. They all preach, they all sing of the same all-pervasive power of love and of compassion. That is what we should teach our children. We are so afraid of talking about religion now that we have allowed the leadership of religion to go into the hands of essentially backward-looking and fundamentalist people. What we have to do is to recapture religion. What we have to do is to reinterpret religion in the light of the nuclear age and to place before our, our younger generations the glory and the wisdom of our ancestors. That is the role that we have to do. Divisiveness is being preached. When in the name of religion, walls are being built to separate man from man, 
we can go back to the source of our tradition, which tells us that these are all different paths to the same goal. In the same way as rivers and rivulets arise from different parts of the country, but flow ultimately into the same ocean, so do all the great religions of the world have different origins, but ultimately move towards the same goal. And this is borne out if you look at the mystic teachings, whether it is the, the seers of the Upanishad, or whether it is the Muslim Sufis, Maulana Jalaluddin Rumi, or the great Christian mystics, Meister Eckhart and Reisbrock and Plotinus or William Blake, or the great, uh, the great uh, gurus of the Sikhs. They all preach, they all sing of the same all-pervasive power of love and of compassion. That is what we should teach our children. We are so afraid of talking about religion now that we have allowed the leadership of religion to go into the hands of essentially backward-looking and fundamentalist people. What we have to do is to recapture religion. What we have to do is to reinterpret religion in the light of the nuclear age and to place before our, our younger generations the glory and the wisdom of our ancestors. That is the role that we have to do. That is the role that our educational system has to perform. And once again, the fifth concept of the Vedanta that I want to put before you, bahujana sukhaya, bahujana hitaya cha. The welfare of all sections of society. There are some philosophies which preach the conflict between one class and another class. Other philosophies preach conflict between one religion and another religion, or one caste and another caste. But the Vedanta preaches the welfare of all beings. Sarve pisukhina santu, sarve santu niramaya, sarve bhadrani pasyantu, ma kashiddukh bhagbade. May everyone be happy, may no one suffer. That is the depth of the compassion in our, uh, in our scriptures. And the Buddha, in fact, went even one step further in Mahavira, that not only compassion for human beings, but for all living creatures. We talk today of environmental values. We talk of the destruction of wildlife and of our uh, ecosystem. We have been taught in our heritage that the earth itself is sacred. The rivers are sacred, the forests are the abode of the devas, because it is ultimately those forests that capture water for us and that make civilization possible. So through such great ideas and ideals, surely we can teach our children desirable values. Can we be accused of teaching religion? I do not think so. These are not values which are dependent or confined to any particular religion. These are universal values. Therefore, let us not be so afraid of our heritage that we refuse to touch it. We refuse to take the beauty and the power of those thoughts. And we deprive our younger generations of any impact of such ideas. Do you know that today it is possible for a young boy from the kindergarten to the PhD level, 18 years of education, not once will he be exposed to these great ideas at any level. 
Are we justified in doing that? I would like to ask this question of my distinguished listeners, wherever they may be. Are we justified in imposing this sort of intellectual and spiritual deprivation upon our younger generations? I do not think we are. And I think it is because of this distorted view that we have taken of moral and spiritual values that we find ourselves today, 40 years after independence, struggling in this wasteland. These, then, are the four dimensions that we have to incorporate into any integral system of education. Physical well-being, in the widest sense of that term, intellectual development, along with the development of the aesthetic sensibilities, and the social integration, starting from the family, going onwards, outwards, in widening concentric circles, until we cover the entire globe. And finally, that spark within us, the divine, which really makes us unique beings, and which enables us to fulfill our destiny. It is only if these four elements receive adequate attention in our educational system that we can begin to call it integral and it can begin to face up to the tremendous challenges that we face today. 40 years is a tiny span when we look at the vast millennia of our history stretching back into the mists of antiquity. But in this nuclear age, time has telescoped and the growing aspirations of vast millions threaten to overwhelm us and our unimaginative structures. What is needed, not only in education, but in all spheres of national life, is the capacity for clear and coherent thought, leading to a carefully interlocking series of policy decisions aimed at meeting the multiple challenges that we face. And education, dealing as it does with the very texture of human consciousness, is surely one of the areas which must receive top recording. priority. Let me conclude by saying that an integral education developed in India can in fact be a model for other countries if it succeeds in integrating science and spirituality, the inner and the outer. With our unique heritage in both these areas, stretching back into the very dawn of history, we are in a unique position to develop this synthesis and present it to the rapidly emerging global community. That would be a lasting contribution, not only to free India that Sardar Patel and his colleagues strove so hard to create, but to the broader world community of which India will remain an integral part. Thank you. Friends, it's my pleasure, duty, to thank the distinguished speaker, Dr. Karan Singh, who spoke to us yesterday and today on a subject of vital interest to us. He examined in detail the multidimensional aspect of education, including development of human personality, 
beginning with the physical body, the training of the mind, and aesthetic sensibilities, the development of socially relevant moral values, and the inner dimension of spiritual growth. The profound scholar that he is, he took us into the realms of Vedanta and Upanishads and explained the need for incorporating the teachings of the seers into educational philosophy. He has made a plea for integration of science and spirituality. It is indeed very kind of him to have acceded to our request in spite of other demands on his time. On behalf of All India Radio and legs of listeners and myself, I extend to you, sir, our grateful thanks. I am thankful to all of you who during the last two days were present with us to listen to Dr. Karan Singh. Thank you very much once again.